X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, May 12th. Today, back in the day on May 12th, 1992, trailblazer Clyde Drexler was added to the U.S. men's basketball team. Clyde the Glide Drexler was the final member to be added to the group that would come to be known as the Dream Team. Generally considered one of the greatest sports teams ever, the Dream Team included other basketball legends like Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Hoosier Larry Bird. The Dream Team debuted right here in Portland, wiping the floor with Cuba's team. America won by 79 points. At the Barcelona Olympics, they were undefeated for all eight games, winning the gold medal. The team never scored less than 100 points per game. A 10-time All-Star, Drexler played 11 seasons with the Blazers and is one of the all-time great shooting guards of basketball. Today, back in the day on May 12, 1994, Pulp Fiction premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. It later went on to win the prestigious Palme d'Or. The fast-talking, hard-boiled crime comedy also managed to snag Best Original Screenplay at the Academy Awards later that year. The movie's monumental success in France carried over to the States. It also revived the career of John Travolta and launched Uma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson into superstardom. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Chelsea Willis from Sweet Delilah Farms. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Governor Kate Brown announced a specific plan yesterday for reopening the state. When 70% of Oregonians above the age of 16 have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, she'll pull back most of the restrictions. That means no more capacity limits on restaurants, bars, gyms, theaters, sports venues, stores, the works. It also means no limits on how many people can gather indoors or for bigger outdoor events like concerts and festivals. She'll also get rid of the risk level tiers that each county is under. Mask mandates could stay in place for a bit, though. Governor Brown said she'll continue to follow CDC recommendations for mask guidelines. Counties could move to lower risk levels if they just hit 65% of partial vaccinations as soon as May 21st. On top of achieving 65%, counties also must figure out a plan for inoculating more members of underrepresented communities such as Latino and Black populations. About 57% of eligible Oregonians have received at least one dose of the vaccine so far. Multnomah County is at about 63%. Washington County is at 61%. Clackamas is at 55%. Even if a county never hits 65%, the governor said she'll still lift most of the restrictions within their borders once the state hits 70% overall. Let's do this, folks. Let's get vaccinated. Daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 660 new coronavirus cases yesterday. There were also 16 new deaths. The total number of cases now sits at 192,416. Oregon has had a total of 2,549 deaths. 
46.5% of adult Oregonians have received at least one vaccine dose, while 34.4% of Oregonians are now fully vaccinated. The state's three largest COVID-19 vaccination sites will close in June. The Oregon Convention Center will close its inoculation site on June 19th. The drive through sites at the Portland Airport and Hillsborough Stadium will close on June 25th. This is due to shrinking demand as more people have gotten vaccinated and walk-in appointments have become available. Nearly 465,000 doses have been given out at the convention center. The airport has given out 202,000 and the stadium about 40,000. There's been no announcement regarding the mass vaccination site at the state fairgrounds in Salem. Oregon lawmakers approved a bill that would extend the deadline for people to repay missed rent. Tenants that have fallen behind on rent would now have until the end of February of 2022. The bill would also ban landlords from reporting non-payment during COVID to consumer credit agencies or from considering missed payments during COVID when evaluating prospective tenants. It even relaxes occupancy limits in order to allow people to have friends and family stay with them during the pandemic while still letting landlords screen any guests. Senate Bill 282 passed in the House by a vote of 39 to 17. The vote was pretty much split along party lines, with only three Republicans voting in favor of the extension. The bill does not apply to commercial tenants. Proponents of the bill argue it's necessary to to avoid an eviction crisis. The eviction moratorium ends on June 30th, and the state is still processing and handling the $200 million federal rental assistance funds. The bill now heads to Kate Brown's desk, where it awaits approval. State Representative Mike Neerman was arraigned yesterday on charges related to his letting armed protesters into the state capitol. On December 21st of last year, Neerman was observed on surveillance video opening a side door to the building where far-right protesters had gathered. Two men then held the door open, signaling to others while Neerman made his way around to the front of the building to re-enter. The protesters who were there in response to COVID restrictions were then confronted by police. The Republican from Polk County has been charged with first-degree official misconduct, a Class A misdemeanor, and second-degree criminal trespass, a Class C misdemeanor. He also faces consequences in the legislature pending an investigation. Neerman was not present for the arraignment and has been absent from floor sessions for weeks as he recovers from covid a new hearing is scheduled for June 29th, where Nearman must appear either in person or remotely. Portland Center Stage announced yesterday that live theater will return in the fall. For the first time in over a year, lights will go up on stage this October. There are seven plays on the slate for the 2021-2022 season, starting with Frida, a self-portrait, a one-woman show about Frida Kahlo. Next up is the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, which was halted after only a week at the start of the pandemic. Some of the other productions include Freestyle Love Supreme, an early Lin-Manuel Miranda work, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch, 
John Cameron Mitchell's iconic rock musical. The season will close next June with the classic musical Rent. And finally, some good news. The Blazers head to Salt Lake City tonight as the NBA playoff race hits the home stretch. The Utah Jazz are the top seed in the West and the best team in the league with 50 wins and 19 losses. Portland sits in sixth place in the West at 40 and 29, a game and a half ahead of the Lakers and the play-in tournament. The Jazz are coming off a three-point loss to the Warriors on Monday. The Blazers put up 140 points in their win Monday night against the Rockets. The Jazz will be without Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley as the two sit out with minor, minor injuries. Carmelo Anthony will be out with an ankle injury for Portland. Tip-off is at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have Chelsea Willis from Sweet Delilah Farms. Chelsea joins us to talk about sustainable farming, organic versus local, female business ownership, and more. Across America, women account for just 14% of farm operators. But in Portland, that number is nearly double. And it's no surprise why. We are a city with a unique connection to permaculture, sustainable farming, and organic produce. Sweet Delilah Farm, nestled on Savi Island, is one such women-owned farm. Today, we'll speak with Sweet Delilah's owner, Chelsea Willis. We'll talk sustainable agriculture, agriculture, hearing from healing from trauma, and why flowers, flower work is really heart work. Good morning, Chelsea. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to get started as a farmer? Um, yeah, my journey was um, an interesting one. I actually, my background is in psychology and trauma work, most specifically. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to incorporate that with working on the land and a local farmer was giving up a piece of property that he was on and it just sort of fell into my lap and I had never grown anything before and so I found myself with a piece of land and I always really loved flowers so I thought I would give it a go and this is now season five that we're in so it's been a really amazing journey um, and really fulfilling. So uh, what are you growing right now? (laughs) Um, Right now we've got probably over 100 varieties in the ground. Um, We grow primarily cut flowers and then a mix of, with a mix of annuals and perennials, mostly annuals, and then some medicinal herbs for some local skincare products in town. Nice. Cool. You mentioned that you used to work in social work and psychology. How do you see the connection between farming and the work you used to do? Yeah, um, I always found that it was harder. I worked with youth primarily, um, teenagers, and so it was sometimes hard to get them to want to open up if we just sat down and I was like, hey, what's going on? Or, you know, we're in a house and it's their environment, but if I would take them out to the farm and we would just be like weeding a bed together or, you know, doing some sort of task, it was easier to get in the conversation with them. And they just kind of of their own accord would start sharing. And I do really believe in the correlation of mental health and working in the dirt. And, you know, they have proven 
by science that there it does change your chemicals in your brain but also i think it's just such a healing practice to be in the ground and to ground that way and i've seen it with these kids and so um it's a really amazing thing to have people out and to be able to work with you know mental health or trauma in that way Mm, i can imagine are you so are you still doing trauma work I'm not currently. It's something I'm looking at. Um, Last year with COVID, it was just hard to have anyone come out to the farm. It was my plan to focus on last season, but I'm trying to figure out ways to incorporate it slowly back in this year that feels safe for everyone. Very cool. Tell us a little bit about farming during COVID. Do you, did you, like, were you able to keep employees? Were you sort of, did you, were you able to still sell flowers? How did that go? Yeah, I did keep my employees. Um, and interestingly enough, it was actually our busiest season because there was a flower shortage. And we're actually going to have a flower shortage this season as well. But because of shipping last year and because all events and weddings got canceled, wholesale flower houses shut down. So florists who were used to being able to go to the flower market to get their orders Mm. couldn't. And so they had to rely on local farmers. So it was a really great season for us. Um, And this year, again, just because of shipping and then there's been um, weather issues in South America, like it's hard to access certain amounts of product right now, which is terrible and good for local for people to understand that there is actually a thriving local flower industry and you can connect with your farmers and get really fresh product. And most of it is grown organically where a lot of the stuff we import is sprayed with a lot of chemicals. So it's nice to be able to educate florists through this process. What would you say was the the hardest lesson you had to learn uh, in your first few years of sustainable farming? Um, I think... I mean, you just, it's, it's the most unpredictable form of work because we're 100% reliant on the weather. And so I think my hardest lessons are just in patience and understanding I can make an entire plan for my season and Mm. most likely it's not going to happen, especially as our climate is changing. So you can't necessarily rely on things to be blooming or growing in the way that, um, you want it to. And now where the farm is, my first farm was in Northeast Portland and now we're out on Savi Island and I'm surrounded by large agriculture who spray all their fields Mm. pretty regularly. And Mm. so I get a significant amount of pest pressure that I've never had before because all those pests come to the organic farms. Um, So that's been a tricky thing to navigate. Um, This is only the second season on this farm, but last year with the pest pressure, it was intense. Do you have a a solid plan for mitigating it this year? We're working on it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is Andy and Julia. We're speaking with uh, Chelsea Willis about her flower business, Sweet Delilah Farm. Uh, Why is it important to get more women farming, especially in urban centers? Yeah, I think the visibility is important. I mean, historically for me, I grew up in... Colorado and just like large scale agriculture was around and it was always men and it was always being handed down to the sons. And Mm. I think it's important to know that, you know, women and female body folk and anyone can actually can farm, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be run by men. And I think it brings a 
different spin on things and uh i don't know my experience is the women farmers i know are just they go about it in a different way of actually like wanting to be gentle with the land and that's stereotyping i'm sure there are men who also do that but my experience with especially in the flower farming community which is primarily all women is just it's a different approach and it's a softer approach yeah i was I was amazed to learn several years ago, I traveled to Bolivia and learned that uh, most of the flowers that we uh, buy in the United States come from South America or South Africa. Um, Is it hard to get people to switch to local? I mean, we have such different flowers locally Mm -hmm. than they do there. Um, Yeah, no, I think think the florists in Portland, like I think we're lucky here and they're really starting to lean into agriculture like local um farmers and sustainable flowers and so that's like a movement that i'm seeing happen here maybe more than some other places um but it is so education because florists are used to being able to say or you know their clients are used to being able to say i want peonies in the middle of winter Mm -hmm. which you have to import those from somewhere we can't do that and so it's just starting to like switch people into that mindset of let's it's similar to you know eat what is in season well use in floral what's in season because it's fresher it's going to last longer and you're putting less pressure on the environment and all these systems that we don't need to be putting pressure on has has working the the land changed the way you think about portland as a city it definitely has i mean i think it's just changed me in general it's a really I mean it has impacted my entire life and I think as far as living in Portland it's made me far more appreciative of what we have here and the climate we do have here and the people who want to support their local farms because there are a lot of them and so and just the community of farmers here is really wonderful and so it it definitely brings that appreciation out I think it's really, you brought up earlier um, talking about how Savi Island is like a lot of large agriculture and then also a lot of smaller farms. How is that dynamic changing? I think I think it's going to be changing a lot in the next, I would say, decade because a lot of these large-scale farms, the owners are starting to get to the point where they're probably going to stop farming. So it's going to be interesting to see what this transition looks like. But there are a lot more um, like small businesses and small farms popping up. Even in the last year I've been here, I'm hearing about more. And my hope is that we start like, there's definitely a divide between the two. And my hope is that the large agriculture can start embracing the fact that we're not trying to necessarily change their practices or like bring any, um, like competition to their business because we can't as small scale farmers, but that we could actually support each other, you mm-hmm. know, and work, work together. What is your primary mechanism for getting your flowers, selling your flowers and getting them out into the world? Um, right now we're doing, we have a few different CSA options through the season. We do the Savi Island farmers market. Um, and then I do floral design. So event design, um, and then this season, starting in mid-June, we're going to open the farm up a lot for U-Picks. We have um, some lavender fields, and so 
we do lavender you picks and then a lot of classes and workshops on the farm. So primarily those avenues. And you'll be able to do those this year, even with COVID? We we should be able to. We were able to run classes just at half capacity last season. And because we're outside, everyone was masked and we were able to spread out really far from each other. And so it worked. And if it feels safe to do that this season, we'll continue to do it. And the UPICs, we limited it to a certain number of people in the farm at a time. Hmm. So what what are your dreams for the future of Sweet Delilah Farm? I think my main dreams are to be able to circle it back to doing the trauma work again, but doing it specifically land-based and continue to have it a space for community to be able to come out and enjoy, you know, the flowers and connecting with the land and taking classes and workshops, but really making it a space for people to come out to. I think that's such noble work. My mom used to volunteer in a elementary school doing a garden with the kids. And it was just such a like joy for her to help kids learn how to garden and for the kids to see, you know, this basil that we made is we're making into a pesto now and we're eating it. Um, I really support that that work of getting on the land and learning about the land in order to to heal and grow. So thank you for doing that work. Yeah, thank you. You said you're opening the farm for visitors in June. How can people find out about your workshops? Yeah, the easiest way is through Instagram. It's Sweet Delilah Farm, and we post all the events in the feed and in the stories just to keep people up to date. Great. And then um, if listeners want to find your flowers for events or whatnot, what's the best way to do that? Still Instagram? Yeah, Instagram or through the website, which is sweetdelilahfarm.com. Excellent. Nice. Well, uh, Chelsea Willis of Sweet Delilah Farm, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Chelsea for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.